Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. Uh, you've got Brett Mitchell here again, and we're joined by Phil again this week. Hello, Phil. How are you, Brett? I'm good. Nice to hear from you again. Thank you. Yes, good to be back. And Phil, we have a special guest this week, as we do most weeks, but an extra special guest perhaps this week. Do you, would you like to introduce our guest? Sure, we do indeed. And this is um, following on from the ASIPSI conference of a couple of weeks ago now. And one of our, or the, the uh, keynote speakers on the opening day uh, I welcome the, uh, today, and that is uh, adjunct professor Alison McMillan, who is the Commonwealth Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer for Australia. Alison is also a member of the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee and also co-chairs the Infection Control Expert Group. So Alison has been extraordinarily busy over the past couple of years in her role. Um, so welcome, Alison. Uh, thank you. Nice to talk to you this afternoon, Phil. Uh, Alison, I thought before we, we, we want to explore um, some of the themes that you touched on in your um, keynote address at the conference. Um, but before we get to that, I was just wondering if you, perhaps you could give us a very brief rundown of your background that got you into this uh, Chief Nursing uh, Midwifery Officer role. Um, yeah, thanks, Phil. Uh, very briefly, I trained uh, as a nurse, as a registered nurse in the in England, in the I'll just put it as the 1980s. I came to Australia as a part of a recruitment scheme um, in the late 80s um, with the intention of working in Australia for a year and returning to the UK. But in fact, I never returned to the UK and now I've lived longer in Australia than I did in England. For a long time, I worked at the Austin Hospital in Heidelberg in Melbourne. Uh, I was an ICU nurse for a long time and then moved into um, education um, and then into hospital management. From there, I worked at the Royal Melbourne um, for a number of years in a number of roles and then to the Department of Health in Victoria, where I uh, had, a, again, a number of roles, which makes me sound very old. Um, <laughs> but uh, included uh, the uh, Director of Safety and Quality um, in the early days of safety and quality emerging as an important part of our business. I was the Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer in Victoria for a number of years and, before I, and also worked as Director of Health Emergency Management in uh, Victoria. Um, so that led me uh, ultimately then to the Commonwealth Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer job where I am now, which I've been in for just over two years. And what a couple of years that's been for you, Alison. What a time to step into that role. It was. Um, Brett, I, I must admit, I, um, I had an idea that this would be my last job, that uh, it would be the culmination of all of my uh, career choices and opportunities over mm. the years, but I would you know, um, a nice job in Canberra with opportunities to move around the country, do some of the work that perhaps I'd not had a chance to do, perhaps in Aboriginal health, um, uh, particularly things like birthing on country, and, and promote the profession um, and hope to contribute something. But in fact, none of the, the way the job was described when I applied and was successful in it really came to be because um, not long after I uh, took the job in November of uh, 2019, of course, the emergence of first the fires, the, the terrible fires of the summer of that year, 
And then, of course, the pandemic that completely mm. shifted this role um, into much more in the forefront of um, the, the leadership now within the Commonwealth Department of Health. So, yes, it is very different. And you would have seen some big decisions being made. I'm not going to obviously breach any confidentiality by asking you about any of those. But I think one of the things you referred to in your, your SIPSI um, uh, presentation was a decision by Brendan Murphy, uh, the chief medical officer at the time, to advise government to close Australian borders. You know, these are difficult decisions and, and, and big decisions that people have to make. So I'd be interested to get your sort of your, your thoughts on uh, on leadership and some of these tough decisions that have had to be made over the last uh, 12, 18 months or longer. Yes, Brett, I remember particularly two very, very long days where the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee, or HPPC as we know it, had to struggle over some of the enormous complexities that we knew we were facing as the pandemic emerged. And um, some of the decision pathways long before we knew where, how long it would be or if we would get a vaccine. And it, an absolute privilege to be part of that discussion. And what I saw was, you know, some of the, the smartest health professionals that our country has um, grappling with complexity of issues, but in a way that was always respectful. And there was a place where people could put contrary views, where dialogue was critical in informing ideas and positions about how we would face this pandemic. And that included, as you say, the closing of the border, the introduction of quarantine, uh, and some of the things we saw subsequent to that. Um, recommendations around wearing masks. And I think sometimes there's a view that these things are made on a whim, and they certainly are not. And there's always very careful consideration about the implications of any decisions. So, as I say, very long hours, very long days coming up with that, then the, the roadmap for, um, for our country as it tackled the pandemic. And uh, as I say, um, you know, it was a model of how one goes about finding common ground and consensus to bring forward discussions and decisions. So, Alison, in, in your uh, presentation, you talked about um, authentic leadership and um, some of the characteristics of that. And one of them, I recall, was you need to be prepared to discuss the undiscussable. And I, I guess that's probably been very common for what you've been doing over the past um, couple of years in, in, these, in these meetings. How do you start having those undiscussable uh, conversations with with stakeholders. You just mentioned that you had very long days, and there must have been moments there where there was perhaps you know at loggerheads with opinions and views. But you seem to be able to to work through these. So, what what sort of tips or what sort of hints can you give us that that lead you to come to those outcomes? I think the success of that comes from from asking questions. So. If someone takes a position that might be contrary to your own, um, it, it's important to understand what's led them to that dis dis decision or why they have an idea. And I think if someone such as Alan Chang, you know, who can, who you know, has is an, an incredible intellect as an individual, but also generous with his knowledge, 
And so you can explore with Alan questions in, in enormous detail, and that can help you understand why he might be making a suggestion. And, and I think because the people in the room came from a variety of backgrounds, there was trust in the room, and trust was built because it was a closed conversation. And, and you know, it was clear that there would be um, some storming and some variety of ideas emerging, but that they would stay within the room and only out of the room would come the ultimate decision. So it, that trust gives you the ability to explore ideas um, and question ideas. And I think that's uh, many of the people in the room had worked together for a very long time. And I think that does help. It would have been much difficult, more difficult to have those discussions with strangers, but there was already a sense of trust. And I think we had common ground. We all knew that we had to provide to national cabinet um, something meaningful that our politicians could work with as it came to a recommendation. So that common ground meant that uh, we did need to resolve um, where there was um, not, perhaps not agreement on some of the approaches. So I guess one of the things you, you sort of um, perhaps men mentioning there or inherently discussing is negotiation type skills as well. And, and being a, a listener and a negotiator uh, and a coordinator. And I guess, you know, a lot of the people listening to this are in, in infection prevention and control and they um, working in aged care, working in hospitals, a lot of negotiation going on um, between clinicians and policymakers and managers. Um, I guess, you know, is, is there anything else that you've, you've learned over the years in terms of those negotiation skills or ways to negotiate that, that, that have helped you in, in your career and, and decision-making? Brett, I definitely think that one of the things that of all the training I've done over the years, I did some formal training in influencing and negotiating. So it's not intrinsically a skill you just have. It's a bit like riding a bike. You have to learn how to do it. And I, I did a... I, I, probably it was a week, I can't remember, of, of particularly honing and learning those skills of, of definitely in influencing and negotiating. And, and what I learned from that is, of course, in order to be able to influence, you have to understand the person you're trying to influence. So you, if you've got, if there's a change you want to bring about or something you think is really important in your organisation, you have to think about this as almost a sales technique. So what is going to capture and take the attention of the audience? And, and what is it that you need to, um, to do to persuade or negotiate with them if there's something you want to achieve? So you have to work at this. You can't just tell someone that they might have to change their practice or tell people of something. You, you, have, to, you have to assume, well, I... Yeah, I would suggest don't assume knowledge or understanding and help where you can. And if you can, be very clear about what the outcome is you're trying to achieve. So as I said, these things don't come necessarily. Some people are probably natural and negotiators or influencers, but I actually had to learn to do it. And I, and I did some training, um, which uh, stood, has stood me in good stead. And over the years, I've sometimes gone back to those resources to remind myself of some of those tips and techniques um, that you might need um, in a difficult situation. The, the term influences has a few different meanings these days, doesn't it, Alison? It but, does, uh, it does. Um, 
I'm yeah. curious. Has there is there been any times where um, it's failed that that those attempts have failed and you've just had to pull up stumps and say, okay, that we're, we're never going to to find the common ground here, or do you just keep working away at it? No, there are times when you can agree to disagree. That's fine. Uh, I think of you know relationships. Um, with um, industrial organisations or unions, you are coming often from a different frame. You know, I work for government. If I'm talking to um, an industrial organisation, it may be that we'll never agree and that's okay because sometimes we do have different agendas. But again, you can usually, with a good adult conversation, you can work through what you can agree on. And, um, and I would suggest that the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation has been an incredible partner to government during this pandemic, something we might not have seen in the past, but because we all knew that we had um, real important things to achieve for, our, um, for the Australian public, that, that we needed to stand together. Um, and in many occasions, we've seen that happen, not always. And, and a union will still pursue at times its own agenda, and that's fine. But when it's come to some things, definitely um, we've been able to find the common ground. So I'm just thinking you've had, you know, obviously a couple of years in the Chief Nursing and Midwifery, Midwifery Officer position and, and all those positions you described prior to that. Um, there's probably a couple of um, things that you've had some big challenges during any of those roles, I guess. Are there one or two that, that um, stand out as particular challenges that you've overcome, and 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 I guess broadly, how did you how did you deal with those? I think the thing, Brett, that's had the greatest impact probably on me personally is that I've had a much more prominent role as a part of the decision maker in the in the Commonwealth Department of Health, perhaps than I've ever had in the past, and also being a part of the team who's covered media. So as you know, in Australia, myself and the chief medical officer and the deputy chief medical officers have often been at the forefront of, of talking to Australian people about the pandemic and the pandemic response. Now, I, I'm privileged in many ways because this organisation put its trust in me initially to do some of that work. And, you know, it's, it's not being common. But the response I've had from the public about how people have said, a lot of people have said, gee, I didn't even know we had a chief nursing and midwifery officer in Australia. Isn't that terrific? And, and it creates a curiosity amongst people about, well, actually, yes, nurses and midwives are very important. And of course, as we know, we're by far you know, right up there as the most trusted profession, nursing and midwifery. So... Doing that is terrifying. Standing in front of a camera doing breakfast television is scary. And it does have some negative consequences because, unfortunately, not everyone's as nice as you might hope. So I do get a bit of trolling. Um, and that wasn't as hard for me as it was for my husband, in fact, because often what we do, and particularly if you have a public persona, it, it impacts your family as well. And so for my husband... Um, it was a little bit more difficult and I had to really make it clear to him that he must not watch or read the comments on Facebook. Mm. Um, 
but the challenge, the, meeting that challenge um, and, and now becoming comfortable with doing media um, it is terrific because it means that our, I hope that nurses and midwives that work in Australia can see that they are represented at the highest level and, and I do work hard to seek to get a feel for, you know, what they see and what they hear. Um, and I hope that in the future my, my role in the pandemic might influence others to consider a leadership role in nursing um, mm. because it, it, it can be so rewarding. So just sort of thinking about that, if, if there's a, a, a budding clinician or um, middle manager or, or someone in academia who's thinking, you know, I, I wouldn't mind pursuing a career in uh, leadership, and particularly in government, nursing and midwifery leadership roles. Um, government's a different beast, isn't it, to, to, other, to other roles. Have you got any, um, any guidance on where they might start out? Yes, I, I do. I, I would suggest if, even to be honest, Brett, even if you're not necessarily seeking a leadership role in government, but if you're seeking a leadership role in, in nursing, in midwifery, in academia, um, anywhere in our health system, if it's into hospital management or um, management in a primary health network or wherever it is, you need to know and understand how government works and how funding works. Because in order to be able to navigate that, that system, you have to understand it. Um, and if you understand it, then you can understand the opportunities that might present you in that negotiating and in that influencing. But you need to, to, to know your audience if you're going to achieve that. So especially going into perhaps leadership in, in a hospital environment, as I say, or in healthcare, Knowing how the money flows, how systems get, how it's governed can put you in really good positions. So, you know, studying um, health service management, something around that can be a very useful tool in the kit bag, um, uh, bringing clinical skills and then knowledge about how a government system works. You've just you've got so much extra resource um, to be successful. Just taking that a little bit further, Alison, sometimes I suspect, um, and you, you probably perceive it as well, that there's a bit of a divide between clinicians and, and government or policy makers. Is, are, there things, are there things that you would like to let clinicians know about your work that, you know, perhaps they don't, don't appreciate? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, perhaps I feel I'll reflect on it that, when, if I think about when I was a ward nurse or worked in ICU, you know, um, the enemy might have been hospital management. And then when I worked in hospital management, you know, might have been the government, of the local government, say the, the state-based government who was the enemy. And then when I worked for them, I found that actually they weren't the enemy at all. But there was a new adver adversary, um, which was the Commonwealth government. <laughs> so um, I think... The system, um, you need to, as I said before to Brett, learning and understanding the system will help you navigate it. And uh, my, my journey through my career has surprised me because, you know, each time I don't know who, who would be the next um, challenge now that I work for the Commonwealth Government in Australia, but uh, um, that's, uh, that's my experience is that, uh, you know, there's... Uh, there's always someone else who's not giving you enough money or um, 
you know, we haven't got enough resources. Always the same things, just different circumstances. Sure. So perhaps as we um, start to to finish up, Alison, do you, just on a, a perhaps more positive and lighter note, are you able to share a couple of, you know, excellent or really impressive things that you've seen in, in your role, particularly with, with the COVID response? I think relevant to this audience particularly is that, and, and Phil, you you were very influential in my decision in, in something during the pandemic. I don't know if you recall, but we uh, when there was the interim report from the Aged Care Royal Commission, it was very clear by then that we knew that infection prevention and control in residential aged care um, was seriously lacking and we needed to change that. And I can recall I rang you and asked you, I sought your advice. And I think part of, of any authentic leadership is being is having relationships that you've formed, such as you and I have known each other for a very long time. And I felt quite comfortable ringing you and asking your advice to spend $125 million on something. Um, so I think that uh, and what we talked about and the decision that we made and the recommendation we made is now that all every residential aged care facility in Australia is required to have an infection prevention control trained nurse in that facility. And that will and is already having significant impact in how we're seeing a response to outbreaks, um, in residential aged care. So I think, and then, Phil, we had that conversation. I made a recommendation to government. We stood, um, I feel, together in being really clear that this was something that could be achieved. We were stretching and challenging our system, but we needed to challenge it. And, and what we saw was thousands and thousands of nurses coming forward to commence that training. Some who had not, as we know, had not trained or had not studied for a very long time, but with support and effort, were able to get over the line. And I think for me, it's the measure of nursing that we saw so many people step forward to do that. And now hopefully we'll see them grow their careers and their study into the future. So for me, that's a great example about if you create an opportunity, people will take it. Thanks, Alison. I, I didn't set you up to answer the question in that particular <laughs> way, but it's a very lovely thing to say, so much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, Brett? Yeah, look, um, I'm, I've really enjoyed listening and hearing some of the insights, Alison, um, from from COVID and just more broadly. Um, and I hope that our listeners have too. Hopefully there's something that someone who's listening today can take away for their own clinical practice, their own leadership skills and their own career development um, as, as we move forward. Um, look, on behalf of the listeners and and um, more broadly than that too, Alison, thank you for your commitment to the nursing midwifery profession uh, and your leadership for, for COVID-19 in particular, amongst many other things. It doesn't, all the other things don't go away, I'm sure. <laughs> so um, thank you for your leadership um, over the last couple of years as our Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer as well. Well, thank you. And thank you to you both um, for inviting me to do this. It's, uh, it's uh, podcasts, I think, are a growing area of, of interest. And, uh, and um, so, yeah, thank you both for the opportunity. Well, our pleasure. Thanks, Alison. So thank you to our listeners again for uh, listening in. And um, we'll have perhaps another couple more podcasts before the end of the year. Um, but thank you again, Alison. Um, thank you, Phil. Thanks, Brett. 
Uh, thanks everyone for listening. It's goodbye from us. <laughs> <laughs>